today's message, I'm going to tell you why you married the wrong person, okay? I'm going to convince to you that you married the wrong person. For some of you, this is going to be easy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen commercials for the online dating scene. I mean, it's everywhere. About 15 years ago, there was like one or two. Now there are hundreds. And in fact, when I made this slide about two years ago, these were all the ones that, are, that were popular. And there are now new ones that are popular that, quite frankly, I would be too embarrassed to put on the screen, okay? There's just oh, everywhere. So there's, there's, there's eHarmony, there's Christian Mingle, there's Christian, there's Christian versions of online dating. There's uh, Match.com, um, Zeusk, um, Chemistry. I think Chemistry is probably my favorite one as a, as a branding. They say we're Chemistry.com because we have the formula. Whoa, what does that mean? We have a certain formula that's going to make your life perfect and happy and complete. There's one called Be Naughty, which I don't know if it still exists, but a couple years ago it was the naughty one, obviously, and it just mean, and it, I think their tagline is there's no strings attached. And now there's all kinds of Tinder and things like that that are out there. Or of course, if you really, you know, Hoosier, you can just go to Craigslist and hook up that way as well. And so <laughs> it's everywhere. And I have to tell you that probably my favorite one is this one here. This is a skit from Saturday Night Live. Don't you deserve the perfect match? I love it. Me, Harmony. And, and, and when Saturday Night Live did this skit, they don't know what they were, they, I don't know if they knew what they were onto, but we live in a generation that's actually now we start to call marriage the me marriage. And I'm going to unpack that for you in a little bit. So I'm not saying anything negative about online dating. I need to say this. Some of you may have met online. That's okay. Um, in fact, I've got lots of friends who met online. So I'm not commenting negatively about online dating. In the world that we live in, everything's online. And I think it's normal. I think it's okay. Um, however, I do think one thing is interesting that I want to comment, and that is there seems to be one thread that runs consistently in the online dating scene, and that is this concept, this idea that we can match you with the perfect match. Does that make you, you know what I'm saying? So there is someone who's right for you, and if you marry that right person, we have the formula, if you will, to take your skill set, take your personality, and match you with someone who also is going to complement you perfectly, and you'll live happily ever after. And that's what all these dating programs kind of sell, which I don't believe for a second, and neither do you, right? When I was in college, we would call this the one. Do you guys remember this? Have you guys talked like that? The, when, you know, I, would, I would meet people and they'd say, well, he's not the one, or she's not the one. And I, and I really kind of was frustrated with this. What are you talking about the one? There's a billion people in the world. There is no such thing as the one. Oh, yeah, there's the one that's right for you. Did you guys hear this? Raise your hand if you heard this. Okay. Raise your hand if you believed this when you were younger looking for your spouse. Okay. So now you've all grown up. It's been a while. Can I ask you a question? Did you marry the one? You did? Okay, yeah, good answer. <laughs> I was so frustrated in college when I'd hear people say, well, he's not the one, and, she's not, and, and I would say something like this. Let's just think about this for a second. If there really is the one out there, you've got a tremendous responsibility to make sure you choose correctly, because if you don't, here's what happens. You don't marry the one, so you marry the wrong one. And if you marry the wrong one, guess what? You're going to be miserable, because you didn't marry the one. And not only that, but the person you married obviously isn't the one, and they're going to be miserable too. Thanks for ruining their life. 
But not only that, but the one you were supposed to marry, if that person gets tired of waiting for you, the right one, marry someone else, he's now married the wrong one, and she's the wrong one for him too because he was supposed to be marrying you. And so now four people are married to the wrong one. And can we just see how this domino effect happens? Everyone's married to the wrong person, everyone's unhappy, and it's all your fault because you didn't choose the one. <laughs> but that's the way our culture thinks. It really does. And in fact, it's the way our culture teaches our kids to think. We don't even have to actually say these things verbally. Subconsciously, we believe that there is one person that's right for me, and, it's gonna, and I'm going to live happily ever after if I find that person. Every love story you've ever seen is about that. Every love song you've ever listened to, every country song you've ever danced to is about that. Well, not every country song. Some of them are just about driving a truck. But these, all the ones about love are about you're going to meet this person, and you're going to live happily ever after, and aren't you glad you finally found the one? Well, here's what's interesting. A Duke sociology professor says this. His name is Stanley Hauras. Says this. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, and it, we will find that right person. And the moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. So, so the idea is that there is someone right for me. Everyone agrees with that. We don't even have to be convinced of it. He says the unfortunate thing is that think that way of thinking overlooks a very crucial aspect of marriage. What is the crucial aspect? It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Why? Well, because we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. <laughs> Am I right? You marry that person, you think, oh, they're perfect. Like I said, told you before, when I got married, I had six-pack abs, okay? Didn't take long for that to fail, you know? You marry someone, you think, you think you know who they are. Or how about this? Even if we first married the right person, maybe you did marry the right person. Okay, forget what I said about the wrong person. Maybe you married the right person. Just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we're not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Raise your hand if you can clap to that. True. So even if there is the right one and you marry them, chances are they're going to change on you. They do. Or maybe you married the right one, they're going to change on you too. So, so you always marry the wrong person, essentially. You always do. Um, Timothy Keller, in his book entitled The Meaning of Marriage, which is an excellent read, he says many people have bristled at Hauwasser's statement. And that's to be expected because he intentionally is looking for a head-on collision with the spirit of this age. So he's telling everyone, I'm gonna, you've married the wrong person, and that is going to make people bristle. What's the spirit of the age? Well, it's that thing that I was telling you about, that we believe there's one right person. There's, there's a chemistry. We've got the formula. We can figure out who's perfect for you. If we can take your DNA and your personality, we'll match it with someone else's DNA personality, and you'll live happily ever after. That is the spirit of the age when it comes to dating and marriage. So um, Stanley goes on to say this. The assumption is that there is someone just right for you to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This overlooks the crucial aspect that you've married the wrong person. So I've said this last week. Marriage changes you. When you get married, the purpose of marriage is to sanctify you and change you. That's why the ancient Catholic Church called it a sacrament. To get married was a sacrament. It changes you. It makes you a better person. You don't want to be unmarried and alone because you need relationships to change you. 
and it changes you so much that you're completely different. Would you agree with that statement? I'm a completely different person today at 42 than I was at 31 when I got married. Completely different, and I'm glad. I'm a better person today. I, I mean, I would like to have the six-pack abs again, but aside from that, I'm smarter, I'm wiser, richer, right? Thanks to her saving money ability, right? Things are a lot better. If I would hate to meet myself when I was 27, I was not a very nice guy. I was lonely, arrogant, and looking for love in all the wrong places. We changed so much. In fact, one scholar said this, my wife has been married to six different men and all of them have been me. <laughs> we change a lot, even, in, even when you don't want it to. So, so the point of what I'm trying to say is that you've married the wrong person because you didn't marry the person you thought they were or because they changed after you married them. And not only that, but um, this is so true that um, Timothy Keller calls Stanley's quote, you know, we fail to recognize that we married the wrong person. He calls it Hauwasser's law. It's a law that everyone marries the wrong person if you go into marriage thinking that that person is going to be perfect and going to complete you. See also Jerry Maguire, right? You complete me. Because I can't live if living is without you, right? That's what, that's what we've been taught. Timothy Keller says this. If it comes to a law then, of course, the reverse of the law is also true. Namely, that you also always marry the right person. Even if you have married the right person, there's no guarantee that he or she will remain such. That person's going to change too, for people have a disturbing tendency to change. So you always marry the wrong person because they're not going to fulfill you per perfectly like you expect them to. But at the same time, you always marry the right person because... No one is going to complete you perfectly. So whoever you're married to, love the one you're with. That's kind of another way of saying that, okay? So here's what I want to do this morning. Two parts of my sermon. Um, first, let's look at what the Bible says about marriage. If you always marry the wrong person or the right person, what does the Bible say about marriage in the first place? Why does marriage exist? Why did God create it? And then once we see what the perfect picture of marriage is, then we can come back and I want to talk about our culture. This is how culture has twisted that or contorted that, or messed that up. And then we'll close with Jesus. Sound good? And I'm going to try to do that really fast. Okay? First, let's look at the, what, the, what the Bible says about marriage. Now, in order to do that, it might be best to read the Bible. And I'm just going to start from the beginning. Uh, in the very beginning of the Bible, I mentioned last week, the story of God that starts with Genesis and goes to Revelation, God's story opens with a wedding. And incidentally, it closes with a wedding, too, in the great feast of, in the Revelation. So the, the story of God opens and closes with a wedding. And the first wedding that we see is in the Garden of Eden, where God creates man and woman, and he, he weds them together, and he creates that institutional statement that says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and what God unites, let no man separate. That's the, that's the definition from God of marriage. But before we get there, let me read this verse to you. You remember the story, right? God creates the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He creates man and animals. And the man's naming the animals, etc. And then God says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Today, I just want to spend some time on this verse. Raise your name if you've heard this verse before. Uh, you have, right? This is the key verse. The man is alone in the garden, and he needs a, he needs a woman, Okay? But let me unpack a few things first. If you remember the story of creation, God creates, right, the stars, the moon, the sun, the sky, the birds, the fish. And every time he creates something, 
he says what? It is good. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but seven times in that poem, God says, it is good. And so it kind you know what, seven in the Bible means completion. So anytime that says seven, it kind of means complete. So God is saying his creation is perfect, complete, and good. It is good. It is good. If you're reading it like a poem, like a song, you kind of hear this rhythm. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. That's, the way, that's, that's what the poem sounds like. And then you get to this one stop, right? It is good. It's not good. What's not good? Someone tell me what's not good. It says it on the screen. Man to be alone. It's not good for... So, so here's, here's interesting. If the world is perfect, right? Seven times it is good. That means perfection. We know that God has created the perfect world. The perfect... Par- Isn't that the definition of paradise? Like this perfect place, Shangri-La, right? Perfect. He's created this perfect place. If the world is perfect, how could a perfect place have God say of it, it's not good? Have you asked, are you asking that question? You should be asking that question. That's what the author wants you to ask. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is perfect. And then the next question is, is the next statement is it's not good. And then you have to ask, is it perfect or is it not perfect? Which one is it? It's perfect, but not perfect. How can it not be perfect? How could it not be perfect? If God created it, how could it not be perfect? There's no sin in the world, by the way. Have you thought about that? We haven't seen the snake yet. So there's no sin in the world. Everything is perfect. God created it. But it's not perfect. It's not, something's not good. How can that be? Because, because the man needs a woman? Really? Can God not create an environment where the man would be just fine by himself? I could, you know, just go out there and hunt pick berries, and worship me, God could say, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? God could, be, God could say, look, I created you to worship me. We have a wonderful relationship. We know that that happens, right? Adam is walking in the garden with God. What could be more perfect? But something is still missing. Why? Well, because, as we've mentioned before, God created us in his image. So we look a lot like God, believe it or not. And God is three persons in one Godhead, Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so within the Godhead, there is community, there is relationships, there's interpenetration between each three of these who love each other perfectly. But when God creates a man, there's only one relationship, and it's a vertical relationship, the man and the God. And God says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a horizontal relationship. He needs a horizontal relationship. Just like I have a little trinity, or big trinity, I guess, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The man needs a trinity, The man needs God, and the man needs another person, another relationship. So now they've got their own little trinity going on, a vertical relationship and a horizontal. So he creates a helper. And here's here's what he says. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, you probably know that that verse has created some problems in the church over the years. You know that? Someone say, amen. Because for centuries, the common view within evangelical Christianity, that is, people who believe the Bible to be authoritative word of God, the common view at that point, unfortunately, was that, that God created the woman to help him. Which isn't wrong view, except for the way that we think of the word help. And we tend to think of it as, the man is the man, and the woman is, she's the helper. She helps, she helps the man, right? How does she help? She makes babies, keeps the house clean, 
takes care of those babies, and she helps the man become the best man that he can become. That's, raise your hand if that's kind, you, you remember the day in which that was the way it was taught. In fact, it was taught that way all growing up for me, and that's what I believed. The woman exists for the man. Now, so I'm going to have to unpack what that ver what word means, because it's wrong. That's not the wet, right way. In fact, I, when I was in seminary, I had to learn the hard way what that word helper means. But I will tell you this. Well, let me just tell you what I love. Well, I'll tell you this. Well, wait, no, I'll tell you. No, I'm going to tell you this. When my wife, she lived in St. Louis, I lived in Dallas, she would come to visit me periodically. When she came to visit me, I had a ring in my pocket, and I was ready to, you know, propose. I had a wonderful plan that I had dreamed up since I was 18 of how I was going to do it, and that's how I did it. But the thing that I added to the plan was I had just learned the week before what the word helper means, which was completely different than what I had thought it meant. And so I got to share what it meant. So I took her to a coffee house, a little called La Madeline Cafe. We got some bread. We got some coffee. We're talking. I said, can I tell you a story? She said, yeah. And I told her what I learned in seminary about the word helper. I said, God created the man. God created, and I'm preaching to her at the cafe. And when I told her what I had learned in class about the helper, she melted in the palm of my hand like butter. And I knew that the next two hours were going to be a huge success. The cat was in the bag. So aren't you wanting to know what I learned? All right. So i got to tell you this story. Another one. All my life, high school, college, I kind of had this ability. I didn't know I had it until now, but I've got kids who have it. <laughs> I had the ability to talk my way into or out of most things. So, like, if there was a big project, a big paper, I could write that paper on the bus ride to school that morning and still get a B plus. No research, no study. I just had a way with words. I could say things, make it sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing a project so I can you know, get on with my life and play video games. And I, and I was able to do that in college, even. And then I got to seminary, grad school. And my professor, we were in Hebrew class, and we had to translate all of Genesis from Hebrew to English in our own words. And when we get to this verse, the professor had a very specific um, paper she wanted us to write, and that was take this paper. I want you to go to the library, look up these commentaries. Here's the page number. I'm going to make it easy for you. I want you to look up what the commentators, all five of these commentators say from these pages. I want you to write all that down. I want you to tell me what the word helper means. And as I did in high school and college, the night before it was due, I fluffed it. You know, means this, means that, means, you know, and blah, 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 and, you know. And I grabbed some quotes off the internet, shoved it in there, turned it in. Guess what I got? A big old F, red mark. And, she, and I walked up to her afterwards like, what happened? <laughs> and she said, well, I would have given you a better grade because you did say some things that were very cute and clever. But you didn't do what I asked you to do, which was to look at these commentaries on these pages and tell me what they said. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I totally did that. <laughs> No, you didn't, because <laughs> if you did, your paper would have sounded quite different, because what my paper sounded like was, a helper means she exists to help him, you know, he's the head, she's the helper, blah, blah, blah. So she said, I'll tell you what I'll do, because I want you to learn this, Mike, go back and do it, and I'll give you a chance to do it again. So I went and looked at those commentators, and guess what I learned? Are you just dying to know now? <laughs> this is called building suspense, wait for it. Here's what I learned, the word helper is, um, well, that word helper fit, in the, in the ancient language it says a help meet, you know, or a helper suitable, is the Hebrew word ezer kenegdgo. 
And the word ezer is the word helper. And the word ezer in Hebrew is a military term. Think about that for a second. It's a military term. A commander may speak of another army helping them. So you're, you're, you're Jerusalem, small little country, and Babylon is coming after you. And you know, we're, there's no way we're going to survive this battle. We need to commission or, or beg another king and kingdom to help us as an alignment you know, to, to win this battle. So Jerusalem may go to Assyria and say, will you help me? And that's the same term used, Ezer, help. Will you help me? So it's used two different ways in the Bible. One, for a military person to help another military person. Two, it's used of God. God is called our helper. You know the verses, he is our ever-present help in our time of need. That word is ezer. It means helper. God helps us in our time of need. God also uses that term of himself in response to military. So Israel is going to get killed by Babylon. God says, I went to Babylon before you, confused them so that they killed each other. I helped you. I helped you in battle. So it's used two times in the Bible. One to talk about kings who help Bigger kings who help littler kings, and one of God who helps us. The Bible also translates the word Ezra as um, strength and shield. God is my strength and my shield, our helper. So what does that say about the woman that God created for us, men? It says that she's not just a helper, right? She's our strength and our shield. It implies that we need help. It implies that we need salvation. So do you see how completely different that is? It doesn't mean that she's just there to help keep the house order in order. It means that we need help. That's why God says it's not good. <laughs> this man alone is not good. He needs help. He needs help. So the next question you might be wondering is, why do we still translate it helper? That doesn't help us any. You know what I mean? It's very confusing. And in fact, I think we should just translate it differently. I think it should say, I will create for him a strength. Or a sh that would be much better, and it would clear up a lot of misconceptions. In fact, many scholars believe that one day that's the way the Bible will sound, because the word ezer could be translated strength, shield, it could be translated helper, but we'd have to then unpack the fact that helper means king and God. Does that make sense? So that's what I told my wife. You think she wanted to marry me after that? Oh yeah, she did. She married me too. Now the other part of that word is go. So a strength that's fit, the word fit, right? I will make a helper fit for him. And again, the word fit's confusing because you could translate that a different way too, right? Who doesn't want a helper who's fit? You know what I'm saying? You guys are supposed to laugh. No one ever laughs at that joke. It's the third time I've preached the sermon. No one ever laughed at that joke. Who doesn't want a helper that's fit? Well, the word fit is kenegdgo, which is a conjunction. It's two Hebrew words, keneg and gado, or whatever. And they go together. And what does the conjunction mean? Like, opposite. That's what the word kenego means. I'm going to make a helper that fits, has it fit. It's like it, but it's opposite of it. Let me give you some illustrations of some things that are kenegdgo, or like, opposite. A puzzle. You're working on a puzzle. The pieces, in order for them to fit together, in order for, in order for them to fit Okay, does that word fit? Has to be like opposite, right? If you have two puzzle pieces that look like this with a bump, you know what I mean? Are they going to go together? Two bumps? No. <laughs> so what if there was two holes? Would they go together? 
you could force it that way, but it, the picture wouldn't look good. It has to be a bump in a hole, <laughs> right? Please don't overread what I'm saying here. Okay, so there's, there's, a, there's, they fit together. Another way of saying it is our hands. Our hands are connected go, or like opposite. My left hand is like my right hand, but it's opposite of my right hand. Do you notice that? In my left hand, my thumb is on the right side. On my right hand, the thumb is on my left side. It's opposite. And it's good, because if my hand was like this, it would be hard to get things done, wouldn't it? It would be hard. So God makes our right hand and our left hand, they're like each other, but they're opposite of each other. And that makes me allowed to do all kinds of cool, fun things, right? Because they work together. And so God makes for us a helper or a savior or, or a strength, I should say, that is like us, yet opposite of us. Isn't that clever? Isn't that good? So if that's the case, is there a formula? No, there isn't. All men and women are like opposite each other. And you're going to marry someone who's, no matter who you marry, is like opposite of you. Is that true? Raise your hand if you could say that's true. Yeah, she's like me, but completely different than me on so many things. Where do you want to eat? Meat. <laughs> what do you want to eat? Vegetables. <laughs> what happened? What, where you're like me, but different? Or this works because we can go out to eat. You give me your meat, I'll give you my vegetables. We're happy now. What do you want to watch a movie? I want to watch a movie with blood and shooting. What do you want to watch? Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Is there any shooting? No. It's, we're like opposite each other. We like movies, but we like different movies, right? What do you want to name your children? Let's name them Barbarian, you know? No, let's name them Hunter. You know, I mean, it's a, come on. So we are, we are in a relationship that is someone who is your helper, yet like opposite. So do you see the point of marriage? Think about this. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And we all in this room know that to be true. And so I'm going to make a strength for him that's like him, yet opposite of him, because every time he wants to go that way, she, who's his, who is his helper, says, honey, you don't want to go that way. And it's painful, is it not? So I've married a strength who's like opposite to me. She often tells me what I don't want to hear. Honey, you're not as funny as you think you are. Please don't ever say that again. Not in public especially. <laughs> again. <laughs> We need someone who's like opposite. If you're alone and you're single and you argue with yourself, do you ever do this? Yeah. So you're, you're young. Who always wins when you argue with yourself? Yourself. <laughs> you always win the argument. But when you're in a relationship of someone who's like but opposite of you, who wins? Not you. <laughs> ever. <laughs> you never win. Because you need help. <laughs> you need someone to help you. So that's God's design for marriage. When it, bring it back real quick. It is not good for a man to be alone. He needs to have a relationship. And what happens when you, and it doesn't have to just necessarily be a spouse. It could be a, a real Christian community or a real relationship. We have it here. There are people in this room who don't like other people in this room, right? I know it. I don't think I don't know. I see those looks. And, and, and what happens? You're in a relationship with someone who's going to sharpen you and make you a better person. And you're going to make them a better person if you will hang in there. So that's what marriage is for. Or to borrow Timothy Keller's joke, it's a military term. <laughs> Think of it that way. Of course there's going to be pain and suffering. That's the God's original intention for marriage. You see how opposite that is of what we think of the perfect one who's going to complete with me? So now let me spend a few minutes talking about our modern and postmodern view of marriage. How have we twisted what God designed to complete earth, right? It was perfect, 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 good, good, good. Wait, not good. Okay, fixed it. Good. 
How have we changed that? Well, it's very easy, because we're selfish people. We've made it a very selfish institution. Um, I'm going to read this long quote for you. This was in um, the New York Times, I think. A columnist wrote an article entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. It's the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore, she says. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. Let me unpack that real quick. For centuries, marriage was seen as a social institution. You get married in public, in front of people, and you say, till death do us part, one person, and that marriage is for this, the social unit of the family. And that social unit of the family was more important than the individual needs of the person. So if she says, I want to go back to school, and he says, what, what is that going to mean for our family? You know, oh, I can't do it right now, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Honey, I, I want, you know, whatever. You can think of all the illustrations. It used to be the marriage comes first. Let's figure out how to make everything else fit under that. But she says, not anymore. Now, in a modern relationship, people are looking for a partnership. This isn't, this isn't a family unit that we fight for. This is a partnership. And what happens in a partnership? They want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. This change has been revolutionary, and Keller says this, this author lays it out unashamedly. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good. Now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. So that's the me marriage. It's me harmony. So we've made marriage about me. So today, when you're shopping for a spouse, we're looking for someone who's interesting and funny and sexy and charming and ambitious. And those things aren't bad in themselves. I'm all of those things, okay? None of that's wrong. But they also want, if you're, asking, if you're looking for that, you're also looking for someone who's 100% supportive of your goals, and they won't seek to change any of your, your goals. I'm looking for someone who fulfills all my needs, and they're going to support me and not try to change me. So uh, if you're looking for that person, Keller goes on to say this, then you're also looking for a spouse who is almost completely pulled together. Someone very low maintenance. We all want that, right? Without much in the way of a personal problems, you are looking for someone who will not require or demand significant change. To conduct a me marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The only problem with that is there is practically no one like that that exists. Person completely pulled together, they don't need to be changed in any way at all, they have no character flaws, and they're perfectly gonna support you and laugh at all of your jokes forever. <laughs> what happens if, you, if we begin to think of marriage like that in those terms, and you may not think of marriage in those terms, or you may not have ever said that out loud, but that is the spirit of the age. That is the way people think. Raise your hand if you would agree with me. That's the way people think, okay. Here's what happens. You marry someone who you think is those things. Someone who's going to support me and, and, and not to try to change. We, we hear people, I want someone to love me for me and who don't try to change me. 
Well, if you say that, then you don't understand what marriage is. Marriage is someone who's going to love you for you, but they're not going to let you be you. They're going to change you. You're going to be changed. You're going to have to be changed. You can't be selfish in a marriage. You can't be selfish as a parent. You've got to change. And so when we get into a relationship like that and with that expectation, here's what begins to happen. Immediately, you begin to realize that the person you married actually is needy. You weren't needy when we were dating, but now you're needy. (laughs) You need me to talk to you when I come home from work, and I don't want to talk. You need me to always make you happy. You need me to buy you flowers and remember your birthday. You need me. You need, you need, you need. And then what also happens is that person who thinks that way also begins to get frustrated every time he or she begins to learn that that person also thinks that he's needy. Does that make sense? I, I, I now realize that you have flaws, and I hate it when you tell me that I have flaws. Another way of saying that. I don't have no flaws. You just don't. You're just being needy. <laughs> And now you're not happy because you didn't marry the right one who fulfilled all your complete emotional needs. And what happens when we start to think that way? It's very dangerous. And here's why it's dangerous. Because most people are unhappy. Let's just be honest about that. Most people in their marriage is not happy. Not all the time. You might have moments of bliss. You might watch Sisterhood with the Traveling Pants together and it'd be wonderful. But then tomorrow's coming, right? And you're not happy. And then when, you, you, when you're not happy, you begin to think, if you're a me marriage thinker, maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe this person wasn't the one for me. And now other people start to look like, well, maybe they're the one. Maybe she will laugh at my jokes. Maybe he will buy me flowers and remember my birthday. And things get destructive, don't they? So the new conception of a marriage as self-realization has put us in a position of wanting too much out of marriage, this is an awesome quote, and yet not nearly enough at the same time. Can I explain that? When we start to think like a consumer when it comes to marriage, and, and can I just tell you this? You are a consumer. You have been highly trained by the American establishment to be a consumer. You may not know it, but you are highly trained as a consumer. Everywhere you go, everything you see, Subconsciously, you are consuming, you are thinking about that thing. Is, what is the price to benefit ratio? How much will that cost me and how much will, much will it benefit me? You have been highly trained to think that way about everything. You see an infomercial? Hmm. You weigh it out, cost to benefit ratio. When I go to the fast food restaurant, I pull up and my first thought is, how can I get the most amount of food for the least amount of money, right? Cost to benefit ratio. And when we start thinking about relationships that way, how, what kind of relationship can I have Well, I'll get the most out of it but not have to put the most into it? Because as soon as I start to have to put too much in it and not get enough out of it, which is every relationship, by the way, I don't want that relationship anymore. Every relationship that I have, can I just tell you, I don't know that I have a relationship other than that kind of relationship where I feel like I'm putting it all in and they're getting it all. And that's not true, but that's the way I feel most of the time. So when we start to think like a consumer, we undercut marriage. Because what we do is we are wanting too much out of it. We want this marriage to be given all to me. Cost is low, benefit is high. If anyone's in a marriage like that, well, good for you. But I feel sorry for the other spouse. Cost is low, benefit is high. Everyone wants that. But at the same time, we're not asking nearly enough out of marriage. Because marriage is designed for the long haul to change us and make us better. We'll be 80 years old with no teeth and still love each other because they made us better. Because I really needed you and you needed me. All right, so let me conclude. What, is, what has it got to do with the gospel and Jesus? 
I mentioned to you last week that Paul says, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother, two will become one, and they will live happily ever after. Uh-oh, is that what it says? No. God did not say it is not good for the man to be unhappy. <laughs> That's never what God said. In fact, your happiness is very insignificant. <laughs> Jesus said you're going to have trouble in this world, and it's true. So it's not about not good to be unhappy. You can be unhappy all you want. It's not good to be alone. So God created us to be in a relationship to change us. And that's what the gospel is all about. Paul says, for this reason a man should leave his father and his mother, choose to become one flesh. And what God unites, let no one separate. And then he says, but I'm not talking about marriage. Which you could say, yeah, you were. And then he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here's another way of putting it. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't look down at us and say, you're so cute cuddly, those little people, and, the, and, 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 and they love me, so I'm going to love them back. It was the complete opposite, wasn't it? Um, the Bible says that this is love, that Christ died when we were yet or still sinners. We were sinning and spitting on him and throwing things at him, and he says, I love you, I love you, I will die for you. I will give my life for you. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed on that cross. He stuck it through. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were so lovable or lovely to him, but he loved us in order to make us lovely. That's what marriage is. We stick, it, not because, stick with it, not because they're always lovable. Believe me, I'm not always lovable. I know you thought I was, but I'm not. And my wife, she's beside me, and she still loves me, even though sometimes she might not like me. Because she knows that I need her, and she knows that sometimes she's not always lovely, and we love each other. So that's the mystery of marriage and why you married the wrong person.